Maximize Your Influence is your podcast for the latest persuasion, sales, and negotiation techniques. Our mission is to help you influence on command, anyone, anytime, anywhere. Your host is the author of Persuasion IQ, Laws of Charisma, and the best-selling book, Maximum Influence. Now, your host, Kurt Mortensen. Hello, Maximizers, and welcome back to Maximize Your Influence. This is podcast 367. Welcome to a new year. Good news today. We've got a special guest today to talk about persuasion, motivation, influence, and hype. We have Michael F. Shine today that we're going to interview and talk about some things to take your life and your income to the next level. Michael, welcome. Hey there, Kurt. It's great to be here. It's good to have you. So, listeners, just a little bit about Michael as we get started here. He's the author of a book just coming out, actually this week, The Hype Handbook, The 12 Indispensable Success Secrets of the World's Greatest Propagandists, Self-Promoters, Cult Leaders, Mischief Makers, and Boundary Breakers. That comes out on McGraw-Hill. We'll give you some information on that in a bit. He's had articles that appear in Fortune, Forbes, Huffington Post, and Psychology Today. He speaks to international audiences spanning from northeastern United States to southeastern coast of China. So good to have you here. And uh, let's just start off with the, the very first question, right? We do this for everybody we interview here on the podcast. So just tell us, off the cuff, what is the worst vegetable on the planet and why? Well, so my favorite vegetable is tomatoes, which I know a lot of people hate. So I, I guess my worst is I don't really like zucchinis very much. When they're baked in bread, it's okay, but that doesn't taste like zucchinis. But zucchini, it's very like soggy and tasteless at the same time. <laughs> and you expect a cucumber, but it doesn't taste like cucumber. So I would say zucchinis. <laughs> Zucchini. I had a neighbor growing up that had a little garden. She keep putting them on our doorsteps. These big, huge, massive things that would take like five meals to eat. So I get it on the zucchini. Although, like you said, if it's breaded, deep fat fried, and dipped in ranch, you can make anything taste good. I'll eat my shoe uh, deep <laughs> fried right. and, and uh, deep dipped in ranch. Yeah. So deep fat fry your shoe a little ranch, you're good yeah. to go. So, yeah. so if you have kids that won't eat their vegetables, there's your secret of the day. Exactly. Your influence secret of the day: ranch. Deep fat fry, you are good Oil. to kill. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Just don't boil it. Trans fats, that's the influence secret. There we go, more trans fats in your life. All right, <laughs> a good topic for the new year. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right, well, let's dive into it. You've got this book on hype, and I love that word. I mean, there's some negative connotations to yeah. that, just like with persuasion and influence. Yeah. Why did you choose the word hype? So, yeah, there, there's a, a ton of negative association in most communities, I chose the word hype for two reasons. You know, I kind of want to take it back. I mean, one is that I always hear people talking about marketing and I own a marketing agency, but if it were up to me, I wouldn't even call it a marketing agency. I would call it a hype agency because with marketing, people focus on all the wrong things. Like I can't tell you how many times people will come to me and say, I got to do some of that social media stuff. Can you help me with that? And I'll try to say in a nice way, like, what for, you know, like just to do social media, like you need to just tweet for the sake of tweeting. So people focus so often on the tools and the tactics and the technology. They don't think about what it's all really for, which is to drive attention and emotion among a sizable group of people to get them to take an action on your behalf. So that's how I define hype. And there's no 
positive and there's no negative kind of connotation. It can be for very, very negative things. It can be for very positive things, but the principles are the same. Why that word though? I got it from hip hop actually, because in a lot of rap groups, especially old rap groups, the word hype was very much a positive. You would have someone in the group called a hype man who was in charge of kind of getting the crowd revved up and and hyped up. And that was a very important part of the group. And I thought that was a lot more exciting than than marketing. (laughs) Yeah, I like the word hype. It's something, and just like with persuasion and influence and even charisma, there's negative connotations. And I've always said, it's like gravity. It's neither good or bad. It's there. That's exactly right. Walking and it's bad if you're falling from a tree. It's just how you use these tools that's important. And I like your definition there driving attention, getting that attention and emotion, which are critical. People aren't listening. You can't persuade them. If there's no emotion, they're not persuaded. So that's Mm -hmm. a big piece of it. And that's where we want to go with this and understand that. So as we look at hype in the world in general, is it easier now to create hype? Is it harder than it has been in the past? What do you think? So it's interesting. When I was doing the research on this topic for the book, I didn't know what time horizon to look at. Should I look at just around our own time, which is digital era? Should I go 100 years back? But you see examples of what I would now call hype going thousands of years back. So, but a lot of us would have to read that epic poem, The Aeneid, in school. It's by Virgil. It's considered the greatest work of Latin literature of all time. And the true story behind that epic poem is that the first emperor of Rome, Augustus, was pretty much, we call him an emperor, but he was a dictator. You know, that was a republic and he became dictator and called himself emperor and he needed to legitimize his rule. So he commissioned this epic poem and had it distributed that really legitimized imperial rule. And it worked, that storytelling element. So these concepts have been happening forever. What differs is the delivery technology. So on one hand, it's easier than ever before because our technology goes farther. We can tweet something out that's a lot quicker than distributing an epic poem by hand. At the same time, excuse me, it's much easier to get lost. So you have to stand out even more than you used to. I would say it really balances itself out. It's hard to make a blanket statement about easier or less easy but the principles are very universal. Yeah, I agree. These universals are universal. They're used around the world. I mean, you same potato, just have to change the gravy a little bit as you adapt it to your Yeah, audience. exactly. <laughs> I love your metaphors, by the way. I'm going to use them. I love that gravity uh, thing. I'm well, I was, and one of the reasons, I've always used a lot of metaphors, but I was researching laws of charisma. I found out that charismatic leaders actually use two, three times more metaphors because they just ring true to people. Yeah. It's something anybody can take to the bank out there as becoming a better persuader. But let me ask you this. As you look at persuasion and influence and the audience here, they want to become better at it, more influential. What do you see the biggest mistake persuaders are making now when they're creating hype or trying to be influential? What is the biggest mistake people are doing right now? There are quite a few. And at the risk of repeating myself, I would say that where people go wrong is that they focus first on the tools and the technologies rather than the principles. I'll give you an example. Someone might have a startup. Let's just give a business example. They might have this really cool new piece of software and they'll go out into the world and they'll, they'll blog and do a podcast 
right? And those are both great things. You're doing a podcast. Your podcast is very well liked. But they'll just go out and they'll talk sort of in this affirmative way about their ideas. They'll talk about their technology that they created. They'll talk about what they believe about things, what they think good business is, what they think good science is. And then they'll wonder why no one paid attention. And that's because they didn't think about what I call hype. They didn't think about the psychology around it. They didn't say to themselves, okay, the internet is about as close to infinite as anything human beings have ever invented. Who is going to find my stuff? Have I put it in the hands of power brokers who can spread it more easily? Or am I just spreading it into the world and hoping people find it? And another principle is that people tend to be attracted to us versus them dynamics. So we often define ourselves by what we're not versus what we are. So when people go out into the world and start talking about how great their stuff is and how great their ideas are, they're not realizing that people are less attracted to that than they are to what they're not and what they're against. And there are many principles like that. But I think the unifying thing here is just because you have good stuff and just because you have good ideas and just because you're putting it out into the universe and onto the internet all the time has no correlation with people paying attention to you or being persuaded by what you do. In fact, you just people might just get lost in the avalanche. You'll usually just blend into the woodwork. And that's a great message. Like you said, they have the greatest stuff, the greatest ideas in the world, the greatest content. But if you don't get your message out there, if people don't see you, if people don't care, then their message never gets there. Especially like you said on the internet, you could get lost so fast. Very easily. On yeah. the internet. But let me ask you this. Let's shift gears a little bit here. In your book, you talk about mind control techniques, which is another one of those words people get a little tense at. But I, I love that, the mind control. Oh, yeah. And it's part of persuasion is changing people's mind. What do you feel is the maybe the coolest mind control technique or maybe the one that surprised you the most as you were doing research for your book on hype? It's funny. I should say when I use the word mind control, even that is a bit of hype, right? I mean, I could say to some body, here's how to be more persuasive. Here's how to get people emotional. But when I, when I say mind control and do it in a little bit of a tongue-in-cheek way, that gets people like you to, to stand up and say, I got to talk to this guy, right? So I, I use my own medicine. So those words were carefully chosen. However, there, there is a bit of mind control. There is a bit of mind massaging, I would say, that takes place. And in some ways that I really didn't expect. So, or at least I didn't understand the mechanics. So there's one concept that I call milk before meat. It comes from this kind of religious phrase when people talk about preaching in a way that gets people to accept your new religions that you got to give the babies their milk before you give them their meat. So you can't hit them over the head with a brand new idea. You know, the world is ending in the year 2114 or there are aliens living on the lip of a volcano or whatever your new religion is saying. You have to start with things that they're familiar with. And I think a lot of us get that, but the mechanisms behind how that happens and why that works are so fascinating. It turns out that our brains on a physical level have thresholds where we can pick up change. So if you introduce a brand new idea to somebody and it's very different from what they're used to, our brains are wired on a neurological level to perceive that as a threat. However, if you introduce the exact same concepts in little snippets and little small changes, like you introduce a little thing first and then a little more and a little more, once they're used to that, a little more, 
your brain literally cannot tell what's happening. We have a threshold below which our brains cannot detect change. And that's how magicians do this a lot. They'll distract you. And when they're distracting you, they'll move something really slowly across a table. And then it looks like it just appeared, you know, to the other side of the table. So a lesson here is that let's say you really have a new product or service or concept that's that's truly different, that, that, is, that is so different that you're afraid that people might get scared off by it. Always think about how you can package it in language or in packaging of any kind that is close to what they understand. So like when Martin Luther King was trying to package the concept of integration, which was very radical for white Americans at the time, if you listen to his speeches, he always used language from like the Battle Hymn of the Republic and the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence, because that's what people were used to. So whatever you're out there selling, the newer it is and the more unusual it is, be as conservative, small c conservative as possible with the way you put it out to the world. Yeah, I love that milk before meat because a lot of times it, people just go and they vomit people on the 17 right. reasons they should do something. And if it's too new, too unique, too different, and they can't see themselves doing it, it doesn't work. We talked this a, a while back on the show that it's easier to persuade someone over four or five little yeah. steps than that one big step if people want to be one and done. But have you identified what that threshold is? You mentioned that the threshold, that new idea, maybe we call it a planting the seed. How do we know what seed to plant or how big a seed to plant? I guess we could put it that way because we know we want to do a little time. Is there a percent or a threshold or a seed or is it just change for everybody? I would think of it a little bit differently. So what you're talking about, and it's very connected, but it's, it's sort of the foot in the door technique, foot in the door where exactly what you said, you influence people over four or five encounters. So you don't just say to them, buy my product. You say, hey, would you mind if I get a glass of water in your house? Because that's smaller for them. That's easier for them to say yes to. Another way to think about it, and this isn't so much percentages, but it's just another way to think about it so you don't have to think about how small the step should be, is to use the language and the imagery of what they're already used to so that it doesn't seem like a different thing. I'll use the example of Scientology, right? Mm -hmm. Scientology is a religion at its highest level, even though they don't usually admit this, but at the highest level, they have a very complicated theology about aliens who invade the minds of human beings, who give us our negative thoughts, who were vomited out from a volcano, stuff that if you walked up to someone in the street and gave them that information, they would probably call the police, you know, because it's very unusual. But Scientology never starts out that way. They use the language and the imagery of something that's very, very acceptable in American society, which is science and personal improvement. So when you go into a Scientology center, it doesn't have weird statues of aliens. It looks like the kind of place where you would go to learn about a new business skill. They've got little machines called e-meters, and we're a very machine-oriented society. They use language about positive thinking, which is a very American thing. It's white walls and big windows, and it almost looks like a high-end corporate office. So instead of thinking, what's the smallest step I can take? How do you wrap your new idea in what the stuff they're already familiar with, the language? Like defund the police is really a bad way to convince people to reform the police because it's so different than what we have now, which is a well-funded police force. 
But if they would have used different language, people may not have reacted as strongly to those concepts. I like that. Foot in the door, it's also known as sequential request, is a very important persuasive technique where you're slowly getting the yeses, getting conformity, changing their mind a little bit at a time. It does get abused sometimes. There was a, when people knock on your door and they say, do you live here? You're like, yes. Right. <laughs> do you love your children? <laughs> yes. And so there's a what we call right. a high lactose cheesy factor to it, but it right. is. It almost doubles your ability to persuade when you're doing a little bit at a time. But I like the imagery that you're talking about where you're talking their language. They're, you can use those metaphors or those ideas because if it's too out there, like you mentioned defund the police versus reform the police, those are two different messages, right. but ultimately getting to the same spot. And that's key. I've had this conversation with someone about defund the police. And I remember thinking that if I were hired by that movement to really affect change, I would do something around serve and protect because people feel like the police do serve and protect. So back to serving and protecting. So saying we love police, we love that they're here to serve and protect us, but they've lost touch with their mission. We just want to bring them back to serving and protecting. Isn't that saying the same thing, but in language that we already accept and welcome? Yeah, because no one's going to say, yeah, I don't want anybody to serve me or protect me. I don't like that. I mean, I, I, no, we probably, love that idea. You'll yeah. probably get a few to say that, but most people are like, no, I, I like that. It's like when politicians right. say freedom and financial independence exactly. and democracy, same everyone- thing what I call fill in the blank. Everyone kind of defines it their own way, but they like the definition and it's a great word. That's it. As we know every word can attract or repel people. That what we call verbal packaging is critical. So let's talk exactly. about this hype. How do you, in this world of the internet, social media, what are some of tools, techniques to attract people, to arouse that curiosity, to create that hype that people need to promote themselves or their product or service? It's very funny because I had this natural inclination to do things this way anyway. I used to play in punk bands and I would dress up in costumes to get attention and walk around the streets. You know, I always had this sort of hype-ish type personality. And I own, as I've said, a marketing agency and our approach has always just intuitively been this sort of hype approach versus other more sort of straight ahead forms of marketing. However, when I decided to get systematic about it and really research it, I said to myself, I'm going to look at as many um, hype artists, just really people who are just really good at driving a lot of emotion and getting people to do what they want and all kinds of crowd psychology books. And my curiosity was, are these people all over the map in the way they do things or are there commonalities between them? And after reading just hundreds of these things and conducting interviews, it really did turn out that I could boil it down into 12. You would see the patterns repeating over and over again. So I would just see roughly 12 patterns that everyone from Charles Manson to Mother Teresa would do, but with completely different content. Whatever is the most useful, I could focus on a few of them. I could focus on some of the ones I think are easy to implement quickly. But yeah, it's, the good news is it can be boiled down to a relatively limited number of strategies. I like that. So what is the one thing that we miss? What is your favorite? What is the one thing you want our listeners to know about hype? If there are two strategies that you can use right away, even in the early phases of your career, it would be the one that I mentioned already, which is make war, not love. It's that you want to pick fights with ideas rather than just saying how great you are. So instead of saying, I own an awesome uh, project management software, say, 
project management software is too complex. In fact, people work too much and it's important to streamline your processes. People will be much more attracted to what you, when you say what you're against, they will build a bond to you than when you say what you're for. So that's one. I would say the other one that in, in the early days of my career, which really accelerated my career, is something that I call create your own secret society, or I call piggybacking. So the concept here is that most of us think that when we need to build a big following, when we need to get lots of people to follow us, lots of customers, lots of users, lots of eyeballs, whatever that metric is, that we just have to kind of do it one by one, that we have to develop word of mouth, get a lot of people to pay attention to us, put up ads, get people to sign up. And that's kind of true. But what the best hype artists do almost to a one is that they make it seem like their success is all happening on a grassroots level. Whereas what they're doing in truth is they're working behind the scenes to develop sort of this old boys or old girls network, a group of influential friends that pulls the strings for them. They piggyback on their success. So for example, there's this guy, Tucker Max, who used to write these books like, um, I hope they serve beer in hell, which was like his antics (laughs) making out with different women and getting drunk. And he was very successful with that, but he eventually got married and had a kid and didn't want to be known for that, even though he made a lot of money at it. So he decided he was going to start a brand new business that was totally disconnected. It was called Book in a Box. It was basically a hypercharged ghostwriting service. For him to do what he did the first time, it would have taken him 10 years because he had absolutely no track record in that world other than the fact that he was a writer. But what did he do instead? He had spent years building very strong relationships with Tim Ferriss, with James Altucher, with Ryan Holiday, all these big gurus. And he basically called them all up and he said, you know, hey, buddy, can you put me on your podcast? And they did. And they all talked his book up. I I heard nothing about Book in a Box. And then in like a two month period on the biggest podcast out there and the biggest box, that's all you heard about. And they did a million in revenue in like a month. So it's just very important to be always working this powerful network behind the scenes. And there are ways to do that. There are ways you can, you can go out there and connect with people on a very human level without making it seem like you want anything from them. Even powerful people crave that human connection. There are all kinds of ways to do that. I love it. Great information, great advice. Listeners, create that hype. Get people to listen, arouse that curiosity. It enables you to sell your message and be more persuasive. So, Michael, where can people find out more about the Hype Handbook? It comes out on the 12th of January, and it's McGraw-Hill, so it's in, in most of the places books are sold. These days, not all of us can get to a bookstore, so it's you know available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, any of the sites that uh, work with independent bookstores. But if you can get a bookstore to open up and feature it, that's always I'm a big supporter of bookstores, all those kinds of places. That is great information, Mike. Appreciate your time and your insights and your wisdom. Of course, your official author name is Michael F. Shine. Look it up. Learn about the hype. Because reality is you got to create the hype. Get noticed before you can persuade people. Because if people aren't listening, if they don't care, if they don't know who you are, it's very difficult to grab their attention and persuade them. So take something you learned today, use it, apply it, put it in your persuasion toolbox. Bottom line, the reality is the non-sugar-coated version is when you need to persuade somebody, it's too late to learn how to persuade. So thanks for being here. You can find us under Maximize Your Influence under YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, and iHeartRadio. 
Or check us out at MaximizeYourInfluence.com. All the information's there. All the podcasts are there. It's also the place where you can take your free Persuasion IQ assessment. Get the new edition of Maximum Influence. Get it for free. Pick up a little shipping and handling. Or just find out what I'm up to. So, use it. Master it. Become more influential and go out and persuade with power.